Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, my co-host Andy Corley and I are joined by Dr. Lewis Probst, a renowned board-certified LASIK surgeon. We chat with Dr. Prost about his decision to ditch cataract surgery altogether and exclusively perform LASIK, how he manages patient expectations, and his tactics for working with unhappy patients. Coming up on Off the Grid. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. All right, and we are here for another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid with our special co-host, Andy Corley. Andy, how you doing, man? Doing well, Blake. Good to see you again. Glad to have Dr. Probst with us today. This is your this is your third and final uh, uh, podcast with us, and I understand that you're, you're never going to do a podcast ever again. That is correct, Blake. I, it took me 10 years to do this one, and I'll never do another one, but thank you for the opportunity. We've had a fantastic time um, over these past two podcasts, uh, and it's really been great to have Andy, who's seen and done it all, um, and it's just been uh, such a good time, so I appreciate it. Um, looking forward to our final episode, um, you know, and, and our thoughts with this episode were you know, there's, there's some people, you know, I'm about five, six years at a residency, and there's some people that may not be household names to you when you're a resident, uh, for those listening, uh, but who in fact are some amongst the busiest surgeons in the country or the world. Um, and these people, while they may still be very active, um, you know, in, in teaching other surgeons, maybe not, they're not the ones that are on the podium all the time, or you're not seeing their faces in all of the magazines constantly. Um, um, you know, yet they're the ones out there doing a lot of the work. And so um, Andy and I were talking and uh, our guest today kept coming up in conversation. That's right. That's Dr. Lou Probst. His name came up time and time again. And so I'll get the ball bouncing here, Blake. Uh, Lou, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. You are a LASIK surgeon. You don't do cataract surgery. Tell us about that. How'd you come to that decision? Are you happy with it now that there's a lot of uh, refractive lens procedures going on, and tell us your view on how you got to be a LASIK-only surgeon. Well, it's an interesting uh, journey, Andy. I uh, I actually started off in uh, as a corneal surgeon, really. Um, I did my fellowship with Ed Holland at the University of Minnesota, uh, and Ed was a uh, and still is very corne- cornea focused, as you all know. And uh, and I when I went back and uh, I was Canadian. At, well, I still am Canadian, but I was living in Canada at that time. Went back to Canada and. I went back to the university where I did my training, and I uh, went, went there as a corneal specialist, started doing corneal transplants, and also did some cataracts. And at the same time, I had the chance to join uh, Jeff Machat when he was starting TLC in the very first center, which was in Windsor, Ontario, and that was before FDA approval. And, um, and I, I noticed something very interesting in my practice. Uh, the most challenging procedure was a corneal transplant, and I took great pride in doing a beautiful corneal transplant, but I found those are my least happy patients. You know, uh, they come in and I'd be marveling over what an incredible job I did, and they'd be thoroughly unimpressed and 
really disappointed that they had to wear contact lens or had a you know some type of astigmatism and so it just didn't seem that uh it was really wasn't um uh as gratifying as i as i thought it would be uh because the patients didn't seem to be that happy about it cataract surgery was was more gratifying actually uh, i could do a lot of cataracts uh, i could do those well and the patients were very happy and there's very few complications but the big surprise for me was uh lasik because um, those patients were actually the happiest patients I had. And uh, so, number one, I was really drawn to the high success rate of LASIK and the very high patient satisfaction rate, and the very low complication rate that you can achieve with LASIK. And the other thing was is that I really, very, very early on in my career, developed a very strong um, uh, frustration and, and almost uh, aversion to working within a hospital setting. Because I found that it was just so inefficient. It was slowing me down in every way imaginable. Um, everywhere I turned, there was a reason why people thought I needed to be slower, that I couldn't do as much as I needed to do. I had no problem getting patients. I was always, you know, right from the get-go, uh, for whatever reason, I was always extremely busy. But, um, I, you know, uh, it, was, it was so frustrating for me. And when I discovered that with LASIK, you could do it in a private clinic and control the environment, control the staffing, control the schedules. Uh, and these people are in a, you know, they're, they're paid in a private environment, so they actually have to listen to you, as opposed to a hospital where you're not paying the nurses in many cases, and so they don't listen to you. And so I, um, I, I was really drawn to the, the efficiencies that were possible in a private clinic, and a private clinic was what really best suited for LASIK. So I, uh, I started doing more and more LASIK, and after five years uh, of practice, I, I just uh, decided to go all in, and uh, I've never looked back. That's a great story. Now, that positive patient feedback combined with the inefficiency of running back and forth to the hospital just said, okay, I'm going to go where I can be most effective. I, I, I love that story. Have you ever regretted that or uh, wanted to get back into lens surgery? Well, um, you know, only once. Only once did I have a pause, and that was in 2008 when the refractive market took a massive tank, when the uh, whole economy tanked, of course, with the subprime mortgage crisis. And uh, my volume was uh, cut more than half, and uh, I had... At the same time, it just built a massive house and had a huge amount of financial <laughs> financial responsibility. And uh, I started feeling kind of kind of silly because I so my income you know wasn't there anymore, and and I started thinking maybe I should get back in the cataract. So I did actually join a, uh, or at least visit and partially join a, cat, a very busy cataract practice near where I live in Michigan, and uh, I know a lot of the surgeons there real well. And I worked with them and you know went to their clinics and did do a few cataracts. But I quickly discovered that uh, it just brought back all the same feelings I had, you know, previously was, you know, yes, this is successful. Yes, this is good. Yes, this helps a lot of people. But it just wasn't the formula I was looking for. I, I like the younger patients. I like the dynamic aspect of refractive surgery. I like the private aspect of refractive surgery. And I, I like the efficiencies of refractive surgery. So... Um, I tried it, and it just sort of uh, vindicated my original decision to go purely refractive. You, you still have that big house? 
<laughs> I'm sitting in it right now. Yeah. Do you, do you have a swimming pool? No, we don't. My wife keeps telling me we should go. I was going to say, I wanted Blake and I to come over and go swimming, but I don't guess that's going to be part of the program today. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. No. Well, listen, we'll, we'll keep moving then because I want to. <laughs> it's interesting that you say um, that about cataract versus laser because, you know, I, I have found, you know, just the opposite uh, in certain circumstances, strangely. Um, uh, in the sense that I do, I do, you know, a high volume of cataract surgery and I do a fair amount. I probably do about of LASIK. I probably do, you know, um, you know, maybe, maybe 40 eyes on a busy week. So probably half what you do. Um, uh, but that's still a fair amount of LASIK. And what's crazy is that, you know, oftentimes the, the expectations are so high with LASIK. It's almost a commodity, right? That I'll be sitting there and they're, you know, I have, I have a young patient, they're 2015 in one eye, 2020 in the other. And they're like, what's wrong with the 2020 eye? You know, it's like, it's almost like it, you don't really thank the pilot whenever they land the plane at your destination. You just get off the plane, right? So, so LASIK almost feels that way to me. They're very happy, don't get me wrong. And certainly the outcomes are better than cataract surgery for sure. Um, but, it, but they expect to be. Whereas with cataracts, you know, even though the expectations are climbing, at least they're older patients, at least they, they have, you know, poor vision ahead of time that's not as correctable with glasses and contacts. So for me, you know, sometimes those are my happiest patients. My true happiest patients are my ICL patients. Um, you know, I don't know if you do any ICLs at all, but, but that's an interesting dynamic. So you found a way to kind of deal with, um, you know, the expectation management of, of younger millennials. Yeah, yeah, I have. And, you know, really to be a successful refractive surgeon, uh, as you know, uh, you have to deal with that. I mean, that's, that's part of the job. And, uh, and uh, having done this, you know, as my sole focus for 20 years, you become a kind of a master of dealing with those situations. And, you know, that situation you've described, I've dealt with that, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And, you know, I know exactly what I'd say. I know exactly how I'd address it. Uh, does it concern me? Does it cause me any, you know, uh, pause or any anxiety? What? No, uh, I know exactly how to deal with that. But, you know, like the interesting thing is, is that that's actually kind of what I like about it, you know, because the bar is high and I like that bar being high because that, that means I have to perform, you know, I have to perform not just surgically, but I also have to perform in the way I interact with people. And I have to always be presenting that, that ultimate, you know, that ultimate surgeon, you know, uh, who's going to instill confidence, but also have the patients uh, be your friend and, and be uh, someone they like and uh, be personable. You have to do all of it to be a, a successful refractive surgeon. And I, and I like that. I, I like the fact that it's challenging. I like the fact that I have to be all on all the time. I have to be on the A game. There's nothing less that uh, will suffice. And uh, to me, that, that to me, I feel like I'm, I'm challenged and I'm using all my skills. And, uh, and I enjoy that part of it. But yeah, I mean, I, I can see how some of these times, I mean, I work with a, I have a lot of optometrists that work with me and sometimes they'll come to me and they'll be say, oh my gosh, you know, the patient in that room there, you know, oh my gosh. But you know, I walk in there and within one minute, we're best friends. It just, it takes me, it takes me no time at all because what I, you know, what you need to do, and we know this as doctors, is you need to align yourself with that patient. You know, as soon as that patient feels that you're somehow, you know, diminishing their concerns or you're not taking them seriously, you're not, you're not really concerned about them, then they start to get hostile or they start to get frustrated. But if you embrace them 
and you're like, tell me about this. I want to know about it. I want to know exactly what you're feeling and exactly what you're concerned about. And then I'm going to fix it. No matter what it takes, I'm going to fix it. I'm here for you. You know, and as soon as they hear those words from you, all the tension's gone and, and you're on board. So I like that part of it. I, to me, it's uh, it comes with a job. Uh, I guess I'd be kind of like being a parent. You know, uh, the kids are great. Sometimes they're a challenge, but uh, you know, you take you take you take it all because that's the what comes with the package. That is a very very great overview. I I um I think a lot of the audience for this podcast are younger and don't have a tremendous amount of experience in dealing with the unhappy patient. So Lou, if you could kind of give the young audience a one, two, three of how to deal with the unhappy patient, I think there would be uh, people would really want to hear that. Sure. I'm happy to do it. And, and, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you, it's a, uh, it's an art form. It is. I mean, it's, it's not something that I don't think anyone, anyone's really born with. It's something you have to learn and it's hard. Because uh, your your knee jerk reaction when a patient is unhappy and is angry is to get defensive. Uh, that's that's what you know. That's what we do as human beings. If someone's kind of attacking you and saying, you know, what did you do to me? And I'm not happy. Then you know your, your knee jerk reaction is to back off. But as soon as you do that, that gets the patient even more angry because what they see there is that you're not accepting responsibility. And so that's the wrong thing to do. And so you have to do the exact opposite, and that is you embrace them. And so, uh, you know, I, I actually have given lectures on this. Uh, I know I'm a ghost now, <laughs> but uh, in the, for 20 years I did. 20 years I spoke at every meeting that uh, I was invited to. And and uh, and so um, I did lots of talks on this. And some of them I talked about how you interact with patients, right down to the height of your exam chair. I'd like to have my chair lower than the patient so that, I can affect the power dynamic. You know, I'm a male. I don't, you know, I'm already the surgeon. I don't need to be more dominant over my patients. So I try to equalize things to make them feel more comfortable. In terms of my body position, I always lean in when I'm talking to patients so that I look and, and feel and act engaged. And the other thing is I never bring a chart in a room when I talk to a patient or type on a computer. I do, everything when I'm in the room with a patient is all about the patient. I look them straight in the eye the entire time I'm talking to them. And I, what that I'm trying to show them is I care and I am fully engaged. So that's kind of a little bit of an overview. But in terms of a problem patient, I kind of have a, like four E's and uh, that I like to you know, talk to my junior doctors about. And the first thing uh, is to empathize. And, and that is, is to ask the patient about their, their uh, situation. And then let them explain it without interrupting them. That's very hard for doctors to do. They're interrupting people all the time. You know, usually I think studies have shown it's, I don't know, within 10 seconds or 15 seconds, doctors interrupt their patients. But you just let them talk. And that alone uh, is like half, half the battle, just letting them tell you what is actually wrong. And then you uh, empathize with them, you know, say, wow, you know, so you're having problems at that that must be tough. I mean, I mean, you're a nurse. You probably do have to drive at night, right? I mean, you know that that's affecting your life, isn't it? And uh, those um, that that alone is huge. Empathizing with the patient and actually showing that you can show how that relates to their life. And the next thing is is education. And then so you you sit back and you say, okay, now that you've explained this, let me explain how I think this might work and how I think this might be happening. And uh, interestingly enough, those first two things 
probably has never happened before because nobody never nobody even even went that you know down that road. So then you do that, and then the next thing is empowering them, and I empower them with short-term goals, and then uh, empower them with long-term goals. So the first the first empowerment is a short-term goal. So the patient's upset. Obviously, they they didn't get what they wanted. They're not functioning the way they want, and it's affected some part of their life, and so they're really distraught about this. And, you know, it, it may not be a huge deal, but they're very focused on it. And so for them, it's a, it is a huge deal, you know, whatever it is. They've really decided that this is an issue. And so if you empower them and say, well, we can do this and this and this and this and this to help you right now so you can drive at night, you can go to work, you can read up close, you can see better far away. And this will change that right away and fix it forever. Uh, well, I mean, you know, for the so that you don't have to worry about it anymore at, at the present time. And so you're solving their problem initially. So then they relax because they're like, oh, you know, I, I don't have to, you know, hide away now because I know I can function. And then you start talking about long-term empowerment. Okay, now how are we going to handle this long-term so you don't have to worry about the, all these little things I just told you about? And so you kind of, kind of map out this plan. And then the final thing I always say to patients, and this is crucial, uh, I really think it's a crucial thing, is I say to them, look, when we came into this procedure, you know, I expected you to do perfectly, and most people do do perfectly, and you didn't expect this to happen, and I didn't expect this to happen, right? But here we are, and, um, and I understand what you're going through right now, but let me tell you something. I'm going to get you through this. I'm going to fix this, and I don't care how long it takes or how many visits I need to see you. I'm going to fix it. I'm not going to charge you any extra money for whatever I need to do. And you're going to be okay. That's what they want to hear. And that's what I do. And I do do that. And, uh, and you know, when I finish that little, that little sort of program, uh, it might take 15 minutes. It might take 20 minutes. I have to, in my mind, kind of put the world on pause because normally my clinics go much faster than that. But I, you know, I know that this is going to take time. So I pause everything else. But once I'm done, that those, you know, that patient leaves there, uh, and they now they're my friend. They're there. We are in this together. We're partners. The other thing I'll do is I'll give patients my personal cell phone number. I'll write it down on the back of my business card, and I'll say, "Listen, if you're worried about this, call me or text me anytime. I'm here for you." They never do. You probably don't get any texts. Yeah. <laughs> no, they never do. Yeah. But you know what? They are so happy to get that card. They're so happy to get it. Sometimes I'll get a text. It's actually funny. Like I will actually occasionally get a text and it'll be the most benign thing. They'll be like, I ran out of wedding dro uh, lubricating drops. Can you recommend a brand? You know, and I don't think they're really, they're not really interested in the answer, but they're really kind of testing me. They're saying like, is he really truly available? You know, like I know he said he was, but is he? And then when I respond, you know, within a, you know, a few minutes and say, Hey, you know, da, 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 I hope you're doing well and everything. And then that's it. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it really, it, uh, it's a huge challenge, but if you, if really, if all anyone in the audience follows that, that program, I guarantee you, if you can do it, you'll be successful. Yeah. I've, I've done, I've done, you know, much of that and, and the small amount of patients that, that, you know, are in that boat. And I, and I agree with everything that you said, there's a lot of great pearls there. And oftentimes these people end up being your biggest proponents afterwards, you know, they're a pain in the rear possibly for a few weeks, but at the end of that, you guys have a special bond and they're actually your biggest promoters as opposed yeah. to being a detractor before. So, 
Um, you know, uh, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is how, you know, how much busy you were, how, how much busier you were like on the speaking circuit and doing all the meetings and stuff, you know, earlier in life, you know, not exactly a ghost of ophthalmology at all. You've written several textbooks. You've done over 120,000 LASIK procedures. Looking at your CV, obviously you're extremely um, uh, visible uh, uh, surgeon. Uh, but, you know, you're mentioning that, you know, these days you don't have to, you don't feel like you have to go to every single one or be at every single meeting. You know, when did you kind of decide that and, and, and did, did family, you know, I know you have, you have, uh, you know, three kiddos, like I have three kids as well. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of going through that now to a degree and I'm only five years out. So, so how did you kind of decide to take a step back and, and maybe concentrate more on business or family or other personal things? Well, Blake, it's uh, a lot of things happened, which kind of came together. Uh, I mean, I was all in for about 20 years. I mean, I was, uh, I mean, I would go to every meeting I could go to. If I went to Oscars, I'd stay like almost the whole meeting. And I'd sometimes I'd have several talks every single day. And I loved it. I loved talking. I love interacting with all the colleagues. I learned a lot. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, things changed. First of all, uh, there was a period of time when LASIK was the thing. You know, everybody wanted to talk about LASIK. Everyone wanted to learn about LASIK. In fact, when back back uh, in the early 2000s, when uh, we would do LASIK uh, some, uh, symposiums or lectures, they were so popular that the whole the whole uh, auditorium would fill up, and then they'd have to put monitors in the hall. You know, because they to accommodate all the people, and there would be people sitting in the aisles. I mean, that's how popular these, the LASIK was. Well, that's changed now, of course. I mean, no, you know, there's really very few lectures at Oscars on LASIK specifically. I mean, there's there's something, you know, uh, um, sort of variations of LASIK, but really people want to hear about cataract surgery. They want to hear special about specialty cataract surgery. They might want to hear about cross-linking. Uh, they might want to hear about uh, the smile procedure. But in terms of really focused meetings on the, the nitty-gritty of LASIK, those gay days seem to have kind of come and gone. So, uh, so number one, it didn't seem like there was really the audience for what I'm focused on, which is the absolute minutia of LASIK. You know, I'm obsessed with one procedure and all the details of that procedure. So that was the first thing. The other thing is the whole environment change. You know, there used to be at the meetings, all these user meetings and a lot of company sponsored activities. And then, you know, times have changed. And as the regulations changed, there, all those meetings have kind of gone away. And so they're really, uh, again, that, that affected the focus on LASIK. So that, those are some of the things. Um, and then also my life changed. And you were mentioning your children and uh, obviously your family and your wife. Well, my kids are all teenagers now, and they're, uh, they're in high school. They're doing high school sports. Uh, they're getting their drive. They've got their driver's licenses. They're getting their orthodontics. They're uh, doing their SAT tests. They're applying to colleges. There's a lot going on in my family. And for 20 years, or no, maybe 15 years, my wife really put her career on, on pause to allow me to just, you know, be as ambitious as I could be. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for her for doing that. But, you know, she's a radiologist and she uh, specializes in, in breast cancer and um, breast radiology. And, uh, and she, you know, decided after 15 years that she wanted to get back into it and pursue her own ambitions, go to her own meetings, you know, make her own contribution to her specialty. And I really didn't uh, have a problem with that. I thought that was completely fair. I mean, she'd really, she'd gone 50% for 15 years, really, for the family and for me. And so, uh, 
she wanted to pursue her career. So I was really after uh, all these years of meetings and flying around and surgery and busy all the time, I was really happy to spend more time with my family while she was, you know, going off blazing her own path in her own career. And so we kind of, it's kind of interesting. It was kind of like a tag team thing. You know, I did my thing and I was still doing a lot of procedures, but I kind of, in terms of the meetings, I felt like I don't really need that anymore. And, you know, for my wife, I was like, you know, honey, you go for it. You just, you know, and she's having a great time and it's awesome. And, you know, she'll tell me I'm flying here and I'm going to China to do this and I'm going here to do this. And I'm like, go for it. It's not what I want to do, but if you want to do that, that's great. I'll stay home and drive the kids to swim practice. And are you, are you every bit, every bit as fulfilled now or even happier now than you were when you were flying around doing all that stuff? Cause I talked to some KOLs and they're like, Oh man, you're going to miss it. If you get off the podium or stop doing this, I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I would necessarily. <laughs> uh, you know, I've never thought of it that way at all. I, uh, you know, yeah, I think you, you pick your, your uh, path and then you just do the best job you can with that path. So when I was doing the lectures, I always tried to do the best job I could with the lectures. I always tried to you know, put a lot of thought into it and tried to hopefully contribute something new and inspire some new ideas. And now, you know, um, I try to be the best father I can be, right? I mean, you know, I'm talking to my kids all the time. I mean, my, my oldest son is heading off to the University of Michigan in, in like four days. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things I want to tell him <laughs> that he, you know, needs to think about and be careful of when he's, you know, off from college because, you know, he's leaving the nest. He's, he's launching. And uh, so I'm doing the best job I can with that. And, uh, you know, for instance, today... Uh, you know, he and I uh, took a Uber car to lunch and then Uber back. But I made him, you know, put it on his phone. So he did the Uber, Uber there. He did the Uber back because I said, listen, if you're at college and you need to get around, you need to know how to do Uber and Lyft and all that stuff. And I don't want you to feel like you're trapped. And I want, you know, I want the, you to be empowered with that. I know it's a simple little thing, but, you know, now now I feel my job is to you know support them, do the best job I can of that. I, I don't. I don't have a problem with not lecturing. I'm, you know, I have another challenge that's uh, probably, I don't know, more challenging and in some ways more fulfilling. At least I can directly see the results of this, uh, these things. Well, I think this has been a great session. And I just want to thank you, Lou, for sharing part of you with us today. You know, I, I, I certainly don't want to suggest that you were a ghost. <laughs> Anything but. But we, we've missed you, and we're just glad to catch up, and it's good to see you, and I'm glad you're fulfilled. And um, I think that'll do it for today, Blake. Is that, you got anything else? Man, I appreciate it. We learned a lot. I mean, you know, this is someone who, who can, who's doing, you know, 100, 100 surgeries or more a week at times, and, you know, thing, numbers like that, you know, hundreds of thousands of surgeries or things that, that people are just getting out or, and training right now. Um, it's just mind-boggling to some of us. It's just impressive to to talk to someone who who can who can do that, but also hear about uh, their personal life and and hear about that balance and and uh, the fact that they're still happy as can be 20, 20 plus years later. So, uh, Dr. Probst, we appreciate you talking to us and uh, and look forward to having you come on the show again sometime. Thank you to Dr. Probst for joining us on this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.